When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, taking, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up th three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Well, after a Ukrainian high school teacher's tirade against government corruption goes viral on social media, he finds himself the country's new president. Uh, that's the plot summary of a Netflix series that launched the political career of its star, Volodymyr Zelensky. He's been in the news a lot lately. The president of Ukraine 
Uh, he's now making headlines globally and being held up as a true leader, a true servant of the people for his leadership in the face of Russian aggression in Ukraine. Uh, the ABC this week billed him the khaki president. Somehow he's captured the idea that leadership is about servanthood and about being present with your people in their suffering. Uh, he's no joke anymore. He went from being a comedian in a comedy about dysfunctional politics to a leader leading on the front lines of a war and people are taking him seriously uh, and I, I think that's because he's embodying this quality we want to see in a leader. Why is it that this servanthood resonates with us the way it does? On this series of episodes in Matthew, Jesus is revealed to us as the Christ, the anointed King of God's kingdom of heaven and as God's Son who represents God to the world, revealing his character and the quality of his father and the nature of the kingdom that he has come to lead. Uh, if you're just joining us in our series, in our journey through Matthew, Jesus has been on the road proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And everywhere he's gone, he's brought the kingdom of heaven with him. Uh, a picture of life without the curse of sin and its broken bodies and broken relationships with God and broken politics. He's been teaching what life in God's kingdom looks like, uh, whether it was on the Sermon on the Mount or in the parables we looked at last week, and he's been showing what restoration and recreation will look like while the religious leaders of his day show something quite different as they turn on him and they want to kill him. Uh, last week, we saw him describe the kingdom as an abundant crop, there were parables in our section last week about wheat and wheat and yeast and bread and fish. And then Jesus took the people of Israel and laid them down in green grass and produced an abundance of bread for them. And between that part of Matthew and our reading this morning, uh, there's a scene where Jesus is approached by a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman who, if you know the Old Testament story, is about as far from the kingdom of heaven as you can get. And this Canaanite woman approaches Jesus, the Lord, the son of David, she calls him. She says, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed possessed and suffering terribly. Pictures of life outside the kingdom. And remember back when Jesus sent out the disciples just to proclaim the kingdom to the lost tribes of Israel? He says again, that's his mission here. This is his first response to this Canaanite woman. I'm here for the sheep. And they have this weird exchange where Jesus says it's not right to give good bread to dogs, and it's literally to puppies. And the Canaanite woman pushes him. She says, yes, it is. She holds firm. And it's pretty clear that in this exchange, they're not talking about literal bread, but about the kingdom. Bread's been this picture of the kingdom breaking in. And then Jesus commends this woman for her faith, just like he commended the Gentile centurion earlier in the gospel. And the kingdom breaks into the life of this family. Her daughter's healed from her illness and from being possessed by a demon. And remember last week, Jesus said, when demons are driven out, that's the kingdom of heaven coming. And so the kingdom of heaven breaks into the family of this Gentile Canaanite woman. And then straight away, we get another abundant bread miracle. This time it's for 4,000 people, for 4,000 men and their families. But this time it's in Gentile territory. This is Jesus providing abundant bread, the picture of the kingdom breaking in, but to Gentiles. And so we start to see the kingdom of heaven as this global restoration problem where 
a project where Jesus comes to solve the problem of sin and bring life to the whole world, not just to Israel. The picture of the kingdom is starting to become clearer episode by episode. And then there's this revealing scene with Peter and the disciples that Simon just read for us. Who do people say the Son of Man is, Jesus asks. That's an interesting phrase. He's calling himself the Son of Man. If you were here last year in our series in Revelation, we saw how Jesus is presented as the Son of Man reigning in heaven and how that goes back to the book of Daniel and to this idea of a human ruler, a Son of Man, who'd enter God's throne room and rule with him. And there's definitely that going on in Matthew as well. But there's a more literal Old Testament thing going on here too. Daniel uses the Son of Man a couple of times, but Ezekiel uses it the vast majority of times you find this phrase in the Old Testament, almost a hundred times. It's used to describe the prophet Ezekiel, the Son of Man, and literally in Hebrew, it's just the Son of Adam. Adam just means man, and so Jesus is calling himself a Son of Adam here, In Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this vision of the throne room of God. The heavens are open and he goes up into the heavenly realm like Moses does on the mountain and he sees heaven and someone looking like this shining man. Now that's an interesting picture to have in our head as we get to the transfiguration. But Ezekiel sees this shining man speaking to him from the heavenly throne, God's glorious likeness. There's a bit of a throwback to Genesis and us being made in the image and likeness of God here the glory of the Lord being displayed in this shining man and the glorious man-like likeness of God speaks and he calls Ezekiel the son of man. And God's spirit comes into Ezekiel so that he can speak for God as the one sent from the heavens, this son of man, this son of Adam who was brought up into the heavenly courtroom, surrounded by heavenly creatures and then sent as a human representative of heaven to speak to God's people to listen to God and then speak his words about what it would look like for Israel to no longer be idolatrous people who just behave like the nations around them, but instead be restored as God's heaven on earth kingdom. Ezekiel's got plenty of mountain stuff. We've seen that in the last few weeks. But this idea of this human being swept up into heaven, this is something that the Old Testament thought that all prophets had had happen to them. Jeremiah in chapter 23 says... He stood before the divine council. This is the mark of a true prophet. They've been present with God and given his word. They've listened to him in order to be sent to speak for him. And so son of man is maybe how human messengers who get swept up into this place where all these divine beings are around the throne of God, humans there, sons of Adam, are described humans in the heavenly courtroom, just like in Daniel 7, where one like a son of man, a son of Adam, turns up just after Daniel has had his heavenly vision of the throne room of God. Son of man's a pretty loaded phrase. Uh, Unlike in Ezekiel, the son of man in Daniel is led into God's presence and given a throne, given a kingdom. It's a picture of a human ruler of the heavenly realm, the heavens and the earth being ruled by this son of man. So when Jesus asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's calling himself, at the very least, a human who dwells in the presence of God and can speak for him, a a new Adam who will do what the first Adam failed to do. Adam and Eve were meant to dwell with God and bring his presence, being fruitful and multiply, bringing his image across the face of the world, expanding the garden. 
And here Jesus says, I'm the son of Adam, the true son of God, the one who speaks for God, the one who's been saying that I'm bringing heaven to earth. But who do people say I am? Are people seeing this in what I'm doing? And the disciples, do they have their finger on the pulse of what people are saying? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And that's an interesting list when you think about it. John the Baptist is a weird guest, especially because he's been alive at the same time as Jesus. We've just heard that John's been killed by Herod in Matthew's Gospel. His head's just been publicly displayed. It's very unlikely that Jesus is John the Baptist. But part of the package of being a prophet is this idea that you speak on behalf of heaven, that you've stood before God in his throne room and you've brought his word to earth. That's what marks out Elijah and Jeremiah. And so the people aren't totally wrong. But this idea that Jesus might be the one the prophets were pointing to, the the prophets including John the Baptist, well, that's an interesting not yet seeing that's going on for them, that Jesus is about to expose, not just through Peter and his answer to the question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? But in what follows? See, Peter, to answer this question, he plucks up some courage. He's quick to speak, often Peter. And he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus isn't just the son of man. He's also the son of God. And Jesus' response to this declaration is pretty incredible. The the first bit is pretty straightforward. Peter is seeing Jesus with sight, with insight that must come from heaven. To be able to recognize him this way, Jesus says, has been revealed to him by his Father in heaven. And here's where Simon gets a new name, Peter the Rock. Now this is a pretty contentious passage, this idea of the rock, Peter being the rock, what does it mean? Uh, has been argued about through history. There's some really playful geographic punning going on here. Whatever it means about Peter and the church and what Jesus is going to do, they are at this point standing at the base of a massive rock. They're in Caesarea Philippi, uh, and when Jesus says, on this rock, they're standing at the base of a giant mountain. So I warned you it was coming. They're standing at the base of Mount Hermon, this dominant feature in the landscape, and it's a super famous mountain, not just in the Old Testament story, but in ancient pagan Gentile religious belief. They're standing at the base of this holy mountain that's holy for the Gentiles. It's a mountain that turns up right back in a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an ancient Near Eastern creation story. It's a jeweled garden dwelling place of the gods in that story. In the Old Testament, it's called Baal Hamon because it was a place where Baal worship happened, idolatry from the nations around Israel. It's the highest mountain in the mountains of Bashan, a mountain range mentioned in Psalm 68. Now, the ESV gives us a more literal translation here than our NIVs that you might have in front of you. Bashan is called the Many Peak Mountain, But this one that's the highest peak gets called the mountain of God. Uh, This is actually the word Elohim, which is both singular and plural. It could be either. So it could be the mountain of the gods. And it's being contrasted here, this mountain of Bashan, where Hermon is the highest peak, with the real mountain of God. The one where God chooses to dwell with his people and reign forever. They're being played off against each other. Bashan... 
Hermon or Zion, the place where the nations around Israel worshipped and thought they could meet with God, or the place where God meets with his people. But there is even an interesting little poetic wordplay going on with the choice of that word that could be plural or singular, because maybe the psalmist is actually claiming Hermon for Yahweh, Israel's God. That's where, where the Lord himself will dwell forever. That doesn't use that Elohim word, but Yahweh, the name for God in the Old Testament. Why should Bashan be envious of where God dwells if Bashan too is actually a mountain of God? Even more bizarrely, this mountain, Mount Hermon, is where the Nephilim, those weird angelic beings, are said in the Book of Enoch, a book that comes between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is where they were said to have landed and made a pact to rebel against God. It's this mountain that represents cosmic rebellion against Israel's God where people would go to worship other gods. It's seen as a throne room, a temple mountain of these Gentile gods, these fallen spiritual beings, where Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion were places where God met with his people and sent them into the world. Mount Hermon, this rock, is a place representing the powers and principalities at war with God's people and with God. And so for Jesus to stand in Gentile territory, in a a city named after Caesar, but a city with an ancient history of idolatrous worship, to stand there and say that the Son of Man, God's Son, will build His church, His kingdom, even here, it's a massive claim. And then at the base of Mount Hermon was a gate to the underworld, to Hades. There was this super deep pool that the historian Josephus writes about, but it, it became this kind of divine gateway, a gateway to the underworld where underworld gods could be brought out into the world through pagan idolatrous rituals. There was a a temple when Jesus was there to the god Pan who kind of ferried people a bit between the underworld and the overworld. And then as if to add insult to injury, cosmic insult to injury, this temple gateway right outside it, Herod, the so-called king of the Jews, Herod the Great, has built a massive marble temple for Caesar right in front of the door. Caesar's claim is that he is the divine king who rules the heavens and the earth. His temple is there in front of this gateway, the gates of Hades. And so Jesus says, on this rock, this mountain, these powers will not rule. These Gentile cosmic powers, their religion will amount to nothing. It will give way to the kingdom of heaven and its victorious king. And those gates to the underworld, they won't prevail either. In fact, Jesus is going to go into death and come out to life to prove that. Death and the grave will not hold the Son of Man as he comes to bring this kingdom that brings not only Israel home to God, but the Gentiles out of captivity to this idolatrous demon worship regime that this mountain and this temple and this whole all represents. Jesus has come to bring Jews and Gentiles home to God, their creator. And so when Jesus says the keys to his kingdom will be given to Peter and the church, it's a sign that their future will not involve being imprisoned by dark forces, but that he's come to set people free from the kingdom of Satan, from bondage to him, from Hades, the place of the dead, the grave, the underworld. And instead he's come to invite them home to God's table. They even get a key. And then the language of 
binding and loosing that he uses here. It's used throughout the New Testament and other texts around the same time as language about the demonic world. And he's saying, that world will have no power over you. In fact, as you come as Jesus' disciples and proclaim this message of his victorious rule, you will be freeing people from that captivity. The kingdom will be coming as people are liberated. Just as he said, when demons are driven out earlier, when people are liberated from bondage to that kingdom of darkness, it's a picture of God's kingdom arriving. When his disciples invite people out of the clutches of these Gentile religions and their pagan gods and their high places and their gates to the underworld and that false worship and invites them into life with God, they are being liberated from darkness, liberated from captivity and brought into the kingdom, into the light. If you think Jesus is God's son, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if your eyes have been opened by God so that you see him as Lord, whether you realise it or not, whether you feel like it or not, this is you. You have been liberated. You have been freed from the dominion of darkness, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, and brought into the kingdom of light. This power is at work in you. But Peter's moment in the sun, it doesn't last very long uh, because Jesus starts to tell them that he's heading to Jerusalem to bring the kingdom and it's not going to look like what they expect it's going to look like. This victory over the cosmic powers of darkness and death, it's not going to look like him sweeping the idolatrous Gentiles into the sea. No, it's going to look like him suffering and dying. And it's like they just ignore the last bit about the resurrection. But Jesus starts making it clear exactly what God's upside-down kingdom looks like. Leadership in his kingdom looks like being a servant of the people, who shows servanthood not just by suffering with the people, but suffering for the people. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm here in the trenches with you against the beastly foreign oppressor and we need more ammo for the fight. He doesn't just visit the wounded in hospital to be present, but those are great human things to do. He's going to bear the brunt not only of the Roman oppressors and their might or the Pharisees and the sort of kingdom they want. He's going to go toe-to-toe with Satan into Hades itself in order to win a victory over those forces arrayed against God and to bring life, to break the curse of sin and death and the bondage that comes with that to darkness. And just when it looks like he's lost the the battle, just when he's as far away as you can possibly get from the kingdom that Satan promised him on the mountain, all this is yours, I'll give it to you if you just worship me, just when it looks like Jesus is losing and Satan is winning, as he's suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, as he dies, right then the kingdom of God will be turning up as he's raised to life. This is his message of the kingdom. And Peter, he says, never. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. And he comes crashing down to earth. He's just called Jesus the Christ. But in the next breath, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. Peter still wants a king who will rule like the kingdoms of this world, kingdoms in bondage and captivity to Satan, uh, so much that when Jesus rebukes him, he doesn't say, shut up, Peter. He says, shut up, Satan. Peter's desire for a king who will rule this way shows that he's not seeing through God's eyes. He's approaching the kingdom with merely human concerns, following the first Adam, not this new son of Adam, the one 
who comes to bring heaven. And Jesus says, if we want to be his disciples, if we want to be people shaped by him, participants in his kingdom, then we don't just need to see him as the Christ like Peter has, but we need to follow him by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and getting on the journey. And that's actually going to be what it looks like to live as the people of the kingdom, as disciples who are released from bondage to curse and death and idolatrous worship and the politics and the conflict that it produces and sent out into the world as pictures of heaven breaking in, pictures of life with God, pictures of people who know that life with God is guaranteed because when the Son of Man returns in His Father's glory, He will be rewarding people with life. Life forever with Him. Life when heaven and earth come together and God and the Son of Man rule from the throne. So the people who've listened to Jesus, because we see Him as King, as the Son of Man, the the mediator between heaven and earth, the fulfilment of the prophets, and so embrace His self-denying way of love and take up our cross, not the sword, and seek to bring God's life into the world... What's well, all coming to a head. The kingdom is going to turn up in the Father's glory and the Son of Man will take his throne in the heavens, just like Daniel pictured, and he will reward those who followed him and those with him, as he says this, will see this happen. So this is something Jesus is talking about that's about to come immediately. The Son of Man being taken up to rule in heaven. It's going to happen by the end of Matthew's story through the death and the resurrection and the ascension. And then just in case we need a visual aid to back up what's just being said in these exchanges about bringing a kingdom that triumphs over the gates of Hades and the powers and principalities and this rock, this mountain, we get the transfiguration. It's another mountaintop moment in the Gospel of Matthew and it's probably on Mount Hermon. That's the mountain right next to the city where this is taking place. That's the nearest high place that Jesus can go to when he takes his disciples up a mountain. This mountain right next to Caesarea Philippi that represents cosmic rebellion against God from the Gilgamesh epic to the story of Baal worship to the Nephilim, whatever your ancient Gentile religion, this represented something other than Israel's God. And Jesus takes his disciples up the mountain to show that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and the ruler over the gods of the nations. So the transfiguration is this cosmic apocalyptic moment where Jesus repeats Moses' journey up the mountain to meet God. He even waits six days, which is a throwback to Moses in Exodus, entering God's presence on the Sabbath. He takes some of his disciples up, just like Moses took some of the leaders up the mountain. And there on the mountain, he is transformed before their eyes. His face becomes like the shining one in Ezekiel's vision of the throne room of God. Daniel's vision of the throne room of God. The revelation picture of the throne room of God we looked at last year. This shining, glorious figure with clothing white as light. Jesus is there on the mountain as a picture of a heavenly ruler. The kind the prophets saw. But on earth, he's radiant just like Moses after he met with God. Only this time Moses comes to meet him. Moses and Elijah turn up on the mountain to meet with God in the flesh. And this is something both of these characters have done before. Elijah met with God on a mountain in 1 Kings. 
He travels 40 days and 40 nights and reaches Horeb, which is another name for Sinai. And he goes up this mountain of God and he meets face to face with the presence of God. Speaks to him not from a cloud, there's a cloud there, not from a wind, there's a wind there, not from a fire, there's a fire there. He speaks to him from a quiet whisper and Elijah hears God's word and is sent down the mountain to proclaim it, to speak against bar worship amongst God's people, to call God's people to be his heavenly representatives. And now these two figures from the Old Testament, two representatives of the law and the prophets, two people who met with the presence of God on a mountain, meet with God with us. That's what Matthew calls Jesus at the start of the story. Meet with the glowing heavenly man and it's on Baal's mountain, this Gentile mountain. And then Peter, well, he actually responds the way an Israelite would respond to a heavenly vision on a mountain. Remember, Moses built the tabernacle in Exodus just after meeting with God's glorious presence on a mountain. It looks dumb. And in uh, Mark's gospel, we get told Peter doesn't even know what he's talking about when he says this. But it's a little picture of heaven on earth that he's just seen. And he wants to build literally three tabernacles, a place for God's presence to dwell. He knows he's seeing heaven revealed as he looks at Jesus. He just has no idea what to do with that. No idea how to respond as Jesus claims this mountain as a place where heaven is revealed, not a place of cosmic rebellion. When this mountain becomes a picture of heaven breaking into earth because here is the heavenly son of man. And more than the heavenly son of man, we get this echo of Jesus' baptism here, but also of the presence of God in a cloud of glory in the Old Testament because as Peter's still trying to figure out his building project, God speaks. And he says almost exactly what he says at the baptism of Jesus. God speaks, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In the Old Testament, if you went up into the heavens to meet with God, you were told to listen to God and to go and speak. And here is God in this kind of heaven meets earth moment, saying, this is my son, listen to him. That listen to him is an addition to what's said at the baptism. Listen to him. This is Jesus being revealed as God with us, as the son of God, the son of man, this heavenly ruler figure, the one who will ascend and rule heaven and earth. And the disciples get it and they are terrified. They fall before the glory of God and this glorious son being revealed. And when Jesus raises them up, and this is a resurrection word, when he says, get up, he raises them up and he says, don't be afraid. And they come down the mountain with him as he continues working to bring heaven to earth, as he continues his journey to Jerusalem. And he says, don't say anything yet. Prophets would get swept up into this and then be sent out. Don't say anything until the kingdom turns up, until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We'll get another mountain scene at the end of the gospel where the disciples go up on a mountain and are sent by Jesus to speak to him. But on the way there, we're getting these little pictures of what God's kingdom looks like when it breaks in. And so what do we make of all this? There are some big, weird ideas in all this. All these spiritual powers, the Gentile worship, these mountains. See, the nuts and bolts of this is that Jesus is God's chosen king. Peter gets it right. He's the glorious son of man 
and the Son of God in whom the Father delights. He's the presence of God in the flesh, a, a picture of heaven breaking into earth, and he comes to win a victory over Satan and Hades, the underworld and death, and to liberate all people from their clutches, both Israel and the Gentiles, bringing us out of kingdoms of darkness and into the kingdom of heaven, releasing us from bondage to the principalities and powers of this world, to the consequences of idolatry, of worship that creates violent systems that are opposed to God, that we see on display in Caesarea, but we also see it on display in the news in our world, and we see on display in our own lives. And he comes to bring heaven to earth, the way the first man was meant to. This son of man comes to bring Eden, the promised land, God's presence in the world, not by ruling like the idolatrous nations caught up in Satan's death machine, but instead by suffering and dying on a cross as a servant of the people. See, one of the reasons the Kaiki president, the servant of the people, resonates so much with us is because it's a little picture of a crucified king. We love servant leadership when we see it on the battlefront in Ukraine, people standing against the evils of this world, but that's because this servant leadership facing death and curse as an expression of love for others is what the true king of the heavens and the earth modelled as he came to bring heaven to earth and restore us to God. Real leadership in whatever space we occupy in this world, as we lead our lives in community with others, real discipleship is service to others. It's denying oneself and taking up one's cross, trusting that God will raise us to life with him when he makes all things new. And this is what it looks like to bring heaven to earth now in our lives, to live as disciples of Jesus. While Peter's first random thought on the mountain was, how about we make a tabernacle, a dwelling place for the presence of God, before God's glorious presence turned up to, to silence him, it's actually Jesus who's going to make a new t dwelling place for God, a new tabernacle, a new temple, a new meeting place between heaven and earth, where his glory would be revealed as people sent from the heavenly realm to earth would speak for God so that he might be revealed and his kingdom might come. And the project Jesus came to build, the temple he came to build, is us. This happens in our lives as we receive God's spirit as we listen to Jesus, the Son of Man, who is now resurrected and ruling from heaven and obey his call to be part of heaven. And as we do this as people who in this story are most like that Canaanite woman, an absolute outsider to God's kingdom, Gentiles, most of us, who are now freed, loosed rather than bound to Satan, so that we too can enjoy bread from heaven, like the feeding of the 4,000, joining in the feast with our Heavenly Father and joining in His project to bring heaven to earth in our lives as we become those who are now present in the reality of heaven, raised with Jesus and united to Him by His Spirit, but also sent into the world as His living tabernacles, His prophets and priests who listen to Him. See, God's kingdom is present in this world when we listen to Jesus and take up our cross denying ourselves to follow him, trusting that God will raise us and reward us 
when the Son of Man returns to make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's a lot. We know there are some really big ideas in the Bible about you and about your kingdom, about your glory, and about Jesus at the heart of all of that, as the one who reveals your glory to the world. And it can be hard in black and white writing on bits of paper to really get our heads around the reality of what's being described. That these stories weren't just flat, but they happened in places that people did things that had meaning and that Jesus came to bring new meaning to the world and to invite us to do the same and to find new meaning in our own lives. And so we pray that we might be transformed, that we might be transfigured as we come face to face with you as your spirit dwells in us to make us more like Jesus, as we become your shining people in this world. And we pray that we might do this by worshipping you, not being tempted to worship other things, but worshipping you as we meet you in Jesus, falling at his feet, because we know that he delights in raising us up And we know that our future is to be raised with him. Lord, this can be hard to believe. But we're so thankful that you include us in your kingdom. And we pray as we prepare now to share in communion that picture of bread from your table, that picture of sharing life in the body of Jesus, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus and on him crucified. And that that picture of what your kingdom looks like would shape the lives we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.